This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 7.08 and you're listening to The Evening Edition with Lynn and Sharmila. And today, um, we've got a, a bit of a special actually because, of course... On August 6th, 1945, Hiroshima became the site of essentially the first deployment of an atomic bomb. Um, so today, yesterday was the 78th anniversary. As we all know, um, another bomb was dropped on Nagasaki three days later. And that was the world's first and so far only wartime atomic bombings. And the the death toll, the, the human toll is really staggering. Um, it left up to 146,000 and 80,000 inhabitants killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki respectively. I think it is an overstating matters to say that this changed the course of history, right? Um, uh, of course, I, I, I have to say it, Oppenheimer was just is just in cinemas. So I think um, even that alone is a sort of mark of how big an event, a world-changing event this was. And I don't want to downplay, uh, when we say devastating, that kind of death toll that it saw. Um, for me personally, this has always been um, a... a a part of history that makes me deeply sad um, and also deeply aware of why it's so important that we remember something like this and why it's so important that we talk about lessons um, and that we continue to push for, uh, it might sound twee, but peace, you know, um, to continue to push for negotiation rather than violent action. So it's not just peace, right? It's actually nuclear disarmament. Um, exactly. As a direct result of these bombings and their effect on history, one of the the main things, and it's funny to talk about funny in an awful way in some ways um, to talk about in a time where we are still seeing um, major... Russia is making, um, you know, veiled threats about nuclear weapons. That's what I mean. Major nations continuing to to talk about the deployment of, of nuclear weaponry. And so it's, it's kind of a sobering thing. Um, and I've never been to Hiroshima, but I visited the Nagasaki Peace Memorial. And I think when you're there and you actually look at the the stopped clocks and you look at the, the photos and you understand really what it was like for a city to be destroyed, um, it's it's incredibly affecting and it's something that I, I still think about a lot. So that is what we're going to be talking about today, um, along with the fact that there were three Malaysians who were present in Hiroshima when the bomb fell, with two of them passing and only one survivor, um, which is an element of history that perhaps we don't talk about enough. So we're going to be covering all of this very shortly with Aaron Dennison, who is a doctoral candidate at Hiroshima University, um, whose areas of interest include regional politics, uh, Malaysian and Japanese politics, and also he takes a special interest in this particular moment in history. Um, let us know if you have thoughts or questions. That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Brave Finance Managers. BFM 89.9. It's 7.13 and you're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sharmila. We are marking uh, today 
a day late, the 78th anniversary of the United States deploying an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Uh, let us know if you have thoughts or questions. That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine and tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us on the line, we have Aaron Dennison, a doctoral candidate at Hiroshima University. Aaron, good to have you with us today. So firstly, um, how was the anniversary of the bombing um, actually marked in Hiroshima? What was it like in the city yesterday? Um, well, it was um, attended by the Japanese Prime Minister himself, um, Fumio Kishida, and as well as the mayor of Hiroshima. So then um, a moment of silence was observed at 8.15am. Um, and um, then the PM sort of... Um, uh, mentioned that it's important to invigorate um, international momentum towards um, a world without uh, nuclear weapons. So that was his sort of a gist of his speech. Uh, but we as Malaysians, we were not fortunate enough to be there uh, because we were attending like a separate memorial ceremony uh, involving the late Nick Yusuf. Uh, but when we went over to the city later on in the afternoon, um, there were many events, um, not only uh, for tourists, but also for local Hiroshima residents as well. Um, so you could see actually like um, the atomic bomb survivors were actually going around telling their stories randomly uh, to strangers, um, as well as they were also um, sort of musical, um, um, sort of um, musical um, ceremonies, uh, solemn musical ceremonies held, performances as well. Um, and there was such a long line at the entrance of the Peace Memorial Museum. And it was something that we never saw before, uh, maybe because it was on the day of the memorial as well. And plus, there was also an interesting protest uh, by a group of activists against um, increased military spending um, by the Japanese government. So, yeah, so there were many things happening actually on the day. What's your personal interest in this moment in history? Um, so my personal interest is actually to provide awareness about how the atomic bombing was very, the atomic bomb very much has a relation to Malaysia. Um, so my interest was sparked when I first visited the Peace Memorial Peace Memorial Museum, um, and there was an exhibition of um, Abdul Reza, uh, who was one of the survivors of the atomic bomb. And then I started to participate in some of the activities organized by the museum themselves. So they were providing um, foreign residents living in Hiroshima with sort of um, awareness about how the atomic bomb has affected many generations, um, those who are living in the city as well. So consequently, I wanted to do something useful for my 30th birthday last year. So I sort of scheduled like a one-on-one -on -one session with a second-generation atomic bomb survivor by the name of uh, Okamoto-san. Um, so he told me about how his mother was a survivor and um, he was a small boy at the time. He didn't know what was happening. Um, and later on, when he grew up, his mother never mentioned anything about the family being A-bomb survivors um, due to the fear of actually facing discrimination. Um, until his aunt later on told him um, that they were uh, survivors of the atomic bomb. And then he told me that, well, you know that there were Malaysian victims as well as survivors, so you should do something and you should provide more awareness uh, about this issue um, in regards to the Malaysian victims. So that's when it sort of sparked my interest and that's where I decided to talk more about this, um, either both in um, the university um, as well as um, now. I'm speaking to you as well, so yeah. So as you've already mentioned, three Malaysians were present in Hiroshima at the time. Two of them, Nick Yusuf, Nick Ali and Said Omar Said Mohammed Al-Sagov, passing away. Uh, there was one survivor, Abdul Razak Abdul Hamid. What can you tell us about um, all three of them? 
So um, the late Nick Yusuf um, and Said Omar were both 17 years old when they came to Japan um, under the Nampo Tokubetsu Ryugakusei Scholarship, where this was actually a scholarship for 205 Southeast Asian students. Um, and they received this scholarship in 1943. Um, and the late Abdul Raza, on the other hand, was 19 uh, when he came to Japan. So all of them together with 17 other foreign students were enrolled at uh, Hiroshima University of Literature and Science, which is today's Hiroshima University, um, to pursue their undergraduate studies um, after initially going through a preparatory training uh, for one year. Um, so their dormitory, which they lived, um, was actually 1.5 kilometers away from where the bomb dropped. Um, so um, I think as we know, um, Nick Yusuf perished um, as a result um, of burns. Um, and then Said Omar, on the other hand, um, initially he survived the blast, but then radiation got to him. Um, and then he stayed behind in a hospital in Kyoto to be treated. And then after five days, um, his flesh sort of cracked and fell apart. And despite the doctors trying to save him, um, he also um, lost his life. The sole survivor, Abdul Raza, on the other hand, um, he sort of interestingly had very little effect but he actually had to go um, for injections for a whole month in Tokyo um, to keep his white blood cells level stable. Um, he eventually returned to Malaya in 1946 and um, embarked on a teaching career. And he actually went on to be entrusted with the task of leading the Malaysia's East policy. Um, by then, when it was sort of initiated by uh, Dr. Mahadi at the time. And he eventually um, did a lot of work um, in promoting Japanese studies uh, in Malaysia. Um, and he eventually passed away in um, 18th of July, 2013. So uh, at the age of 88. So that's a little bit of about uh, the three, um, two victims and one survivor. Aaron, the three men being in the city at that time, um, you know, the trauma that they went through, this doesn't seem to be something that's discussed often. Why do you think that is? I think one of the reasons is, I think this issue is um, very much... I think the, the sensitivity that surrounds the Japanese occupation in Malaya, uh, I think this is one of the main reasons. But but that does not mean that um, we should not be remembering them as victims and as survivors, uh, because at the end of the day, they were local Malaysians, or at least Malayans at the time. And they were young. Um, and two of them lost their lives at such a very young age. Um, I think it's also important to understand that for them, pursuing their studies should not be equal with how we currently get our scholarships. <laughs> because they were studying during wartime. And as the war got worse, they also had less food. They were also struggling themselves. Um, so there was an excerpt on how, um, when they felt lonely, um, like when Nick Yusuf, uh, when, when, when he and his friends felt lonely uh, and were missing their families, uh, they would actually sing, um, they sit by the river and sing Rasasaya. So I think that's such a, I mean, when I first was reading the excerpt, it was really sad for me. Um, and because I think we also need to always remember that they were also young teenagers and they lost their precious lives. So, yeah. So a part of why I think people have been, um, why, why this moment has been top of mind for some recently is because Oppenheimer has renewed interest in this chapter, but it's also been criticised for not adequately conveying the depth of harm that was done to Japan and Japanese people. Have you seen the film and what can you tell us about how it's been received locally? Okay, so um, I have not seen the film because um, Japan has does not have a release date yet, um, and this is very much due to the timing when the movie was re when the movie was actually released in the first place. 
So it was released on the 21st of July, if I'm not mistaken, um, this year, which was actually less than a month before the 78th um, anniversary of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima City. But I think many Japanese in general are not against the movie per se, but it's just the timing of the release, um, as well as the memes that have been going around, which are indeed not sensitive to the victims and families that were directly impacted by the bombing. In a larger sense, talk to us about the sentiment towards nuclear weapons and separately nuclear energy in Japan. So the sentiment towards nuclear weapon is actually very different when you ask those living in Hiroshima um, or even in Nagasaki, but I can't speak for residents of Nagasaki, um, than other parts of Japan. So residents in Hiroshima are indeed a little bit hard on both nuclear weapons and energy because they've lived through the effects for generations. Um, but those in other prefectures um, accept the use of nuclear energy. But nonetheless, I think perceptions, um, even from the rest of Japan, is sort of changing, especially what happened to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant back in 2011. But for the residents of Hiroshima, the message is actually very simple. No more Hiroshima, referring to the use of nuclear weapons. So no more nuclear weapons that should be used anywhere in the world. Having said that, we're talking today at an interesting moment in modern politics because Japan has been edging away from its pacifist approach in recent years as a response to the the changing uh, the the changing political culture really in the world. Um, where do you see that heading? Well, at the moment, it's not heading in the right direction, um, especially with the increased military spending um, by the Japanese government due to the great great power competition between the United States and China. So I don't think Japan has much choice um, because it is very much it very much relies on the US for support in terms of security. And it's also difficult for Japan to say no to the US's request as well. Um, in addition, um, Japan and South Korea are sort of the two countries that are that the US is actually relying on to counter China's aggression. So honestly I just see a continuation of the current policy in preparing for sort of a preemptive strategy towards China, which is definitely not going to make anyone in Hiroshima happy. I mean, I can I can assure you of that. Aaron, we've received a message from a listener, HJ, who is essentially saying that um, it is it was deserved for Imperial Japan, um, that they were the aggressors, that it uh, if they had had the capabilities, they would have done it. And then tying that back to uh, the sufferings of Malayans under the Japanese occupation. And um, considering your areas of interest cover both Malaysian politics as well as Japanese politics, I'm wondering how you see that intersection, because for some people, it is still fairly recent history. Um, I think equating both um, together is is a bit unfair, uh, particularly because, again, um, the people are not responsible for what the leaders do. Um, Politics is about, so when the leader says something, it doesn't necessarily mean that I believe in what the leader says. Um, So during war times, I mean, most of the decisions were made by the leaders, the emperors and militaries. And if you know, if you know, if you understand military, you can't say no to the chain of command. I mean, as a military person, you have to adhere to the command. So I think equating what uh, the general population went through and what the leaders decided at the time is actually not very much fair, in my opinion. So that's where I stand. 
What lessons do you hope people continue to take away from this seminal moment in history? Um, I think one lesson that I hope uh, people, um, especially Malaysians, will take away from this um, moment of history is that it's important to remember that we have a direct relation when it comes to the atomic bombings in Hiroshima with two victims and one survivor. Um, and the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima isn't just another historical event. It shouldn't be seen as a, just another historical event, but it's an event that took the lives of two young Malayans, young Malaysians. And it is about time that we raise awareness about them in addition to hoping, hope, in addition to hopefully actually adding this piece of history um, into our school textbooks. So that's what uh, I think that we could do at least. Aaron, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Aaron Dennison, a doctoral candidate at Hiroshima University, talking to us on the uh, a day after the 78th anniversary of the United States dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Uh, we've been asking you for your thoughts and messages. You can keep them coming. We do actually have, um, well, Andrew saying it is similar to a terrorist attack. It's totally unacceptable um, for atomic bombings or nuclear. Um. It's, it is, I mean, what I find interesting about these conversations is really how um, even today there are people split on whether the bomb should have dropped or not, right? Uh, some people stand on the side of it was the only way to achieve peace. Um, but I agree. For where I stand, I think it's totally unacceptable to resort to measures like this. And Munif uh, closing us off saying the Japanese are amazing after such a devastating blow to their nation. They totally turned it around by being the absolute strongest when it comes to soft power. Pre-bomb, they tried to sp spread their influence via tyranny. Post-bomb, they actually succeeded via their art from general aesthetics, culture, mentality, entertainment, tourism. If this isn't the comeback of the century, I don't know what is. Munif, I, I agree. I also think that there's so much, um, so many people much better, better versed than me have written about resilience and how that manifests in Japanese society in particular. Uh, it, and I feel like every time I watch um, something or read something or look at certain cultural products from Japan that are post uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, there is so much of that thread, uh, so much of their national narrative actually goes back to that moment. We've been talking today about the uh, bombing of Hiroshima, um, as, as mentioned, a day after the 78th anniversary. You're listening to the Evening Edition, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.